media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles this morning. It's going to be one of those rare times again when we get into a uh, a series like this that we use uh, multiple different places to to come and uh, and begin to uh, see what God is telling us, and we've been on this subject of biblical joy. I've got a question for you. In fact, I have several questions for you this morning, but one for you to ponder right from the beginning. Biblical joy, the joy that we have defined by biblical terms, not just by a culture or even in our own understanding, but biblical joy, is it a matter of the head or a matter of the heart? I heard somebody said yes. Who was that? Was that you, Vicky, back there? Yeah. Is it a matter of thinking or feeling? Is it a matter of theology or passion and emotion? Vicky, you can go ahead and say what you said before. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, so how many of you are more thinking people than feeling people as far as, you know, just that's your orientation? So theology is something that kind of interests you, for example, from a Christian perspective. Go ahead and raise your hand if you do that. Okay. Yeah. So there's our kind of thinkers. Doesn't mean that the other people are non-thinkers, okay? Any more than those thinkers are non-feeling people. How many of you, uh, I would assume the rest, are more oriented toward your passions, feelings, emotions, and all those kind of things? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah. So we, so we kind of have a divided crowd here, and that's kind of cool that we have people that would say, okay, this is more of my orientation, this is more of my orientation on this side. Because the correct answer is that God made us both ways. He did make us thinkers, and he certainly has filled us with passions and emotions. And, and so my belief is the answer of that is biblical joy is found in both of those. But, it, but here's the thing. Here's how they connect. Good theology corrects and directs my passions and my emotions. Would you agree with that? That that would be a biblically sound statement? That, that good theology, the importance of that isn't just that we have all of a sudden these thinkers and we go around postulating things that we think that we're really smart about. No, good biblical theology, that is the Bible, is always going to direct these emotions and your passions. Because can your emotions and your passions misdirect you? Yeah. I thought he loved me. Oh, man, you, you fell head over heels. How many of you have had teenagers and you had to sit down with them the first night that their heart was broken? How many of y'all have gone through that? Oh, my goodness. Try to get some thinking in that conversation. You know, it's all feeling, isn't it? And it's all feeling. So, you, so proper thinking, you know, you can say, well, that's not the only fish in the sea. I mean, you can come up with all these things. You can, you can be very biblical about it. But there's emotions that you're dealing with. And what you're trying to do is balance and direct and correct some of those mis-emotions, those mis-thoughts, those passions directed in the wrong way by, by more of a sound, logical point of view. Well, that's where theology, good theology, biblical theology, fits in place with God making us emotional people. It directs our thinking, and when it's wrong, it corrects our thinking. On biblical joy, we've been going now for this, the fourth week, and we begin to, to kind of form what biblical joy is. Um, to begin with, we, the very first week, we wanted to really, be really clear. How does the New Testament describe a Christian? Not people, 
but Christians, those that have trusted in the finished work of Christ. And there's two descriptors that we've looked at week after week. That Number one, it describes us by position, that we are in Christ. It's the most relative term that we see in the New Testament of the description of the Christian, the person who has trusted Christ. They are in Christ. It's a positional thing that we have. That's good theology. Because there are there times that you don't feel like you're in Christ. So good theology tells us that because of the work of Christ, that's my position. Not what I feel like today. And I need that in certain days. But it also tells us that we have a possession. That is, we have this ability to possess biblical joy. We're not trying to say that people that don't know Christ do not possess a certain amount of ability to be happy or to have joy. But there's something that's really deep about this biblical joy that really does separate it from just happiness. And so we began to look at that. The second week we talked about how joy, biblical joy, is rooted in two things, God's purpose and his provision. And really one of the, probably the most important verses, if you want to say, uh, of the word that we've been looking at is Hebrews 12.2. To me, that's my go-to when I need good theological mindset to mix with my emotions that can be correct, that need to be directed and, and corrected sometimes. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And we began to look last week that oftentimes biblical joy is associated with words like enduring. Count it all joy when you face various trials. And so the point last week, is joy a choice? Is biblical joy a choice? Is it automatic? Is it something that just happens? Or is there really an involvement that is that we need good theology to correct and direct our emotions? And my conclusion, and I believe that it came straight from the word, is that yes, that it is a choice. Remember that we looked at James chapter 1 verse 2. And last week I said, how many of you have in your Bibles the first word, count it? And how many of you had the first word, consider? It's the same Greek word, just interpreted different. And even though I love the ESV, I love how the Holman Christian interprets it. They, they have the word consider. ESV uses the word counted. Same Greek word. But what it's talking about is this process of thinking. Uh, uh, give an example. To count one through ten. Is that a process? We don't go one, seven, four, eight, three, ten. Yeah, exactly. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten. There, there's a logical order, but there's an order that seems to be right, and so that guides us. But how many times when we truly encounter difficulty in our lives that we only count to three? I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to trust you, God. And then it just gets too high of a cliff. All of a sudden, you know, the emotional part of it is so, you know, tentative at that point that we don't count to the rest of 10, biblically speaking, to use what James was using as his format. That's why he said consider, count. Because he knew that there was times that we would not even want to count in difficult various trials that God somehow was doing something, that God had purpose, and that he would have provision. But even when we've been trained to do that, we know this is the right thing to do. We know that verse, perhaps. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the test of your faith produces steadfastness. How many of y'all believe that? 
Okay? And, and look at the rest of it. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect in a moral way. Christ has already made us that in, in, in the theological positioning that we're in Christ. What it means is that maturity is going to come more and more in Jesus Christ. How many of y'all believe that? But when things really get difficult, about midway through that passage between verses 2 and 4, how easy is it to start counting it all joy? And then when it gets really, really tough, let's just be honest. One, two, three. And we don't finish counting to ten. I mean, that's the promise there. It's all built upon God's provision and his promise. And that's what makes biblical joy really one of these really hard, hard things. That's the challenge of it. We may begin to count and consider, and yet do we finish that? And so that's the last three weeks. That brings us up to a point this morning where we begin to see, okay, what is the source of this joy? Now, ultimately, let me go ahead and kind of give you the answer, okay? Jesus. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer, and then we'll work our way through the Scripture to find that. Biblical joy is rooted from our relationship with Christ in a person, not in a procedure, not even in a principle. I love principles. I'm a theology person, okay? I like theology. And if it, you know, I need it to correct and direct my emotions, but I love this side of the equation, okay? I love the math of it, so to speak. And yet, the math of it doesn't save me. The principle itself doesn't save me. The person of Christ saves me. Does that make sense? Because this is something that we, especially for all those that raise your hand on the theology side, you know, that really is one of those things, hey, we know the principle, we believe the principle, and so we kind of put trust in the principle instead of the person. Or sometimes, if you're more on the emotional side, I'm trying to color everybody in here, it's like, man, I just love Jesus. I just love Jesus. It doesn't matter what I you know. All these other things, forget principles. I just love Jesus. Well, principles are needed, okay? But they're not the end game. God has given us the ability to have good theology, to direct and correct our passions, and how he made us and he wired us together. Because when we look at this thing called biblical joy, guys, we can really get this wrong, not just miss joy, but we can put it upon ourselves as something for ourselves to achieve in our lives. And biblically, I just can't make it that because I don't believe that's what God intended. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. How many are still with me at that point? <laughs> Is that not heavy? Rejoice on Sundays when things are going good and even when things are challenging your faith to, to some degree. And yet that's not, this, these are commands, guys. These are not suggestions. The right that they were written, they were commands of God's. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Does that feel like a weight on your shoulders? Is there a part of you that says, okay, if I'm going to perform well as a Christian, I'm going to have to do these things. And and yet we would put the emphasis on that word perform. I've got to do these things. 
How many of you have ever felt the pressure, whether with your family, with co-workers, with church members, other people that you come into acquaintance with, they know that you're a Christian, you're going through a difficult time. How many of you would admit that you have felt the pressure to smile and live out, Jesus loves me? You know, kind of, you know, I, I just, I have to rise above the darkness of this situation. Now we have to ask ourselves, is this what the Bible teaches? Is it on our shoulders? Last week we said that biblically, I hope that you found that joy is a choice. That there is an involvement that we have. But there's a difference thing between going to the source of joy and having to be the source of that joy. And that's where we get into trouble. Is it easy for you in your Christian walk to hear these commands and to put upon your shoulders the weight that you have to be the source of these things? How many of you have fallen for that before? I certainly have. Is that biblical? Is that what God intended? When he says rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Oh my goodness, what a weight. I can have a blue Christmas? I can't have a time that I'm just kind of heavy-hearted? So we need to straighten this out. Let me share some good news. Let me share some really good news. The source of joy is not found in the crevices of our own abilities and our own strength, but in the person of Jesus Christ. We said that before that we believe that. Can we, can we really embrace that? Can we grasp that? Because good theology is going to turn into good practice if we, if we allow it. It's going to correct and direct anything, our passions, our emotions that are misdirected, that need corrected. And so we know the right answer, and that would be the right theological answer, but how do we get that in daily living to correct and direct us when we're just not feeling it and we're actually feeling that we have to perform as a Christian? We have to kind of do this because others are watching Look at the connection that Paul begins to make in Philippians 4. Let's just read verse 4 by itself. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Joy, rejoicing, same thing. One's a noun, one's a, a verb. They're, they're both the same action. They're, they're both, both come out of the same place. Both share that, both in the Greek and the meaning in our life. Okay, so joy, rejoicing, kind of interchangeable. Just one's the, the noun, one's going to be the verb. Okay. Paul is connecting in this verse the source of rejoicing to a person. Who is that person? Rejoice in the Lord. It's right there. Now look at the verses that follow. This is really important for us to, to understand this so that, that we're not digging down deep within ourselves. We're not kind of coming with some kind of a humanistic mindset and trying to make it you know, Christian in its orientation. No, this source is a person, and this person is the Lord. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Isn't that kind of showing, okay, there's times that we feel this pressure that we just want to show people the hope of Christ? Do you want to show people the peace of Christ, the joy of Christ? And so he says, let your reason be known to everyone. You know, we, we know that we want to show this to other people. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. Doesn't that kind of reflect what we saw in Thessalonians? Paul's writing two different churches, and yet he gets, carries this same message. Thessalonians must have had a short attention span. Philippians a little bit more. Because the Philippians, I mean, to the Thessalonians, he makes it really short. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Philippians, a little bit broader attention span, and he begins to elongate this out. Be anxious about, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Period. In Christ Jesus. This guarding of the heart and the mind, this correcting and directing passions and feelings and thoughts. He settles it all on a person, not on a procedure, guys. And not even on a principle, even if it's the right principle. I mean, I like right principles. I like good theology. And yet, good theology, absent Christ, equals nothing, guys. And yet I find myself, because that's my orientation, and I'm saying that I'm a correct thinker, and I'm thinking... I'm not trying to say that I'm a smart guy. (laughs) I would say just the opposite. But that is where my orientation is. Think it out, and then you can feel it out other. Other people, your first gear, feeling. And if somehow logic wants to enter there, it's third or fourth gear. We're just different. One's not right, one's not wrong. But my orientation is, where's the principle? Where's the theology? And I can get so centered on the principle and the theology that I miss that it's founded Anybody else have that struggle? You know the right things, and it is the right thing. And because it's the right thing, it brings comfort, it brings direction, it does a lot of good things, and yet we miss the person. And yet this Paul is saying in verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it doesn't even make sense, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the beauty of the incarnation. This is the beauty that God comes to us in person. That he clothes himself in flesh. He doesn't send a diplomatic team. He doesn't send a royal declaration. He doesn't make... Could he have shouted from the heavens a royal declaration? Yeah. Basically, whenever we say, could God do something? Except for sin, the answer is always going to be yes, because God can do anything. And yet he didn't. He doesn't send some diplomatic team, uh, a legion of angels. He, he doesn't send uh, a royal declaration. He sends, he, he clothes himself in flesh and he dwells among us. This is the foundation of biblical joy. We, we tried to define what it is. We've tried to define, is it a choice? We've tried to define all these different things about joy. And yet the most important thing about this joy is the source of this joy And the Bible is very clear about this, that the source of biblical joy is Christ himself. He did not abandon us to our sin, but he came to us to to take on our sin, to to be sin for us. Instead of living a life sinless, and that was our chore, we felt at birth. 
The minute we took our first breath, we're born with a sin nature. And so God does not abandon us. He comes and he clothes himself in flesh. He lives a perfect life and then he dies for the sins of all those that would put trust and belief in him. Folks, understand that this is the only foundation for biblical joy. Not the stars aligning. Not good things happening in your life. Those make us happy. And as we said in the very first week, there's nothing wrong about that. Happiness is not forbidden in the Bible. It's just, we said it's fickle. Happiness, if you've seen some of those kids yesterday picking out toys, I mean, we have a literally a barn full of toys there at the Ag Center. I mean, thousands and thousands of toys. And they get to pick five. I want that one. Oh, no, I want that one. Oh, no, I want that one. And as they would go down the different booths, they, they would kind of change their mind. You ever been a kid like that? You ever been a 50-year-old like that? Yeah. Man, I, I thought, man, I, that looks so good. That makes me happy. Oh, that makes me happy. It's fickle, guys. There's nothing inherently wrong with happiness. We cannot find a Bible, uh, a verse in the Bible that says, okay, to be happy is to be unholy. No. Just to understand how fleeting it is. It is not foundational. And it is built upon certain circumstances that kind of go your way. I mean, the guys yesterday, I hope I'm saying this right and not offending somebody, they picked out blue bikes and black bikes and different bikes. There was a whole bunch of pink bikes. I didn't see one guy walk off with a pink bike. What if the only bike that was left was a pink bike? He may have said, I like the value of the pink, of a bike so much that I, I don't care what color it is. But I just remember when I was 11, I probably would not have been real satisfied with the pink bike with streamers. You know, I just, that, that's, that's not where I was walking, okay? And so all of a sudden, it's like, okay, yeah, I do want a bike, but you know, I have a preference kind of on a bike. This is the bike that I like. This is who we are. We are people that God is building and wired us with passions, with emotions, and yet good theology, good biblical truth corrects and directs those. Because when it says, Give thanks in all things. Does your mind need to be corrected and directed? Mine does. There's some things that just come naturally. I walk, my wife walks in at the end of the day, and I'm thankful. This is a good thing. Something bad happens. You mess with my kids. Now with my grandkids. Giving thanks is not my first reaction. My first passion, my first emotion. I hope I can share this, Brian. Well, I'm about to share it, so <laughs> throw something at me if I'm not. But in discipleship the other morning, he was talking about uh, Drew's game, and in and, and the game, there was some physical contact with a player from the opposing side. <laughs> and I told Brian, <laughs> I said, I said, you know, I really wasn't worried that worried about you or Marty. But the two Debbies, oh my goodness, how did they stay in their seats? You know, I, I'm not going to mess with Debbie if I'm messing with Drew. I mean, just the mama bear, oh man, it's there. Am I true, Debbie? Okay, good. <laughs> and so at that point, what do I need? I, I need good theology. I need the word of God. I need the truth of God. And I need the very spirit of God to correct and direct. 
Because if not, I, I'm going to end up in jail. I, I'm not trying to be silly. I'm just trying to be truthful, right? Last week we talked about forgiveness. That's always my go-to as an example because it is so hard to do. To truly forgive as we've been forgiven. To do that biblically, it seems like just impossible. But if we find forgiveness in the person of Christ, empowered by the Spirit of Christ, then we find that we have the ability through Him, that position and that possession, to do things that were humanly impossible. Let that sink in. That God did not send principle. He didn't demand from heaven an edict. He clothed himself in flesh and he dwelt among us, guys. And then the God who dwelt with us, when Christ ascended, he said, I'll send to you a comforter. I will come and I will live in you. Do you grasp that this morning? That the living God dwells not just among us, but now he dwells in us? This is the only way that we're going to have true biblical joy. Especially on this level that it's talking about. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. That is humanly impossible. Even if you're the richest man in the world, go read Ecclesiastes. Is his conclusion, because I can have all things, I am the happiest man in the world? Go read Ecclesiastes. He's got everything. He can afford anything. And he said, man, life is really futile. It's like chasing the wind. True meaning is the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. It's about this person. Let this sink in, that he is the source, he is the strength, and he is the substance of joy. Let's end on Romans fifteen thirteen because I, I want to show you something that this fruit of joy or this association I call them cousins, and that's a deep theological concept. Cousins there, okay? Because where we see joy, oftentimes we are going to see when biblical joy is mentioned, it's it's mentioning trials and and. Uh, and, and God developing something in us. But we also see something else. We see another association with biblical joy, and that is hope and peace. Hope and peace. They're cousins. They hang out a lot together. You see one, you, you see the others. And, and we kind of, you know, how many people have been married 25 plus years? So. And, and so we just kind of, you know, when we see Tony walk in, we just expect, okay, by his side. And, and, you know, they say that we begin to look the same as we are married for a long time. And I don't know if it's just that familiarity that we just see these two, or they really do begin to look. You know, Radley, Tracy, how long have y'all been married now? 23, okay? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. And I have not filled up Wednesday's counseling session yet, so just... Text me. We'll get it down. Man, we'll take care of that. We'll go right through that, brother. <laughs> Did Tracy and Radley begin to look the same in your mind? Yeah, that over time you just see one, you see the other. And, and that's how God really kind of does that with joy, 
hope, and peace. He says, okay, if you're going to have biblical joy, some of that is, is going to look like a hope. You're going to have a hope, and you're going to have a peace. You can use the word contentment. Andy and I were talking before the sermon. Contentment, that can be thrown in there too. Romans 15, 13. Look how Paul describes this. May hope fill you with all joy and peace. Is that what it says? What does it say? It's a person. It's founded in this source of a person. It's not just something we strum up. It's not just a thing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This morning, would you love for that to be a descriptor of you, one who's abounding in hope? I mean, there's a lot of things. I love being called Papa. That, the intimacy of that is as special to me as any intimacy on, on, on earth right now. I love to be called husband. I love to be called father. I, I love in, in, to be called pastor. That, that God would call me and try to use me. But what do I want to be known for? What do I want to bound in? To bound in hope? Man, I, I would love that to be... Man, that Bobby, oh yeah, he's just abounding in hope. Wouldn't you love that to, to be... Have you ever been around somebody who's not abounding in hope? Have you ever had to work side by side with somebody who's not abounding in hope? I mean, the next cubicle over. <laughs> and sometimes they're not abounding in hope, and it's like, oh, I just don't even want to go to work. Not because I'm the picture of hope, but they're not abounding in hope. They're abounding in despair. Doom and despair. That's their middle name. We don't want to be that person. So how can we be this person who truly is abounding in hope, especially biblical hope? To keep the context of this verse, I always want to keep it in context when we are just kind of picking verses here. He was talking about the hope of the Gentiles to now come into relationship Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's addressing. That now the Gentile has the same hope as the Jew. That, that God chose the Jewish people. And, and now the Gentile has this through Christ. Have this. And, but Paul was writing with, with the living the Christian life in mind. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, what is it heavy on? Emotion or theology? Theology. Chapter 12 Four, it still has theology. It's not absent theology, but it's talking about practicing the Christian life on a regular day, everyday basis. So he lays down the foundational theological truth. Then he says, okay, this is what it looks like when you go out and you begin to live it. And we can really kind of divide Romans into those things. Here's the truth, and here's the application of truth in everyday life. This comes in the application of truth in everyday life. With that in mind, let's go back and read it again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Hope, joy, and peace. I don't think that Paul was trying to make a dramatic theological statement of which one is first. In this example, he's saying that hope breeds out or gives out uh, joy and peace. I don't know that he's trying to make this as a theological statement of saying, okay, peace and joy always come from hope. I think he's saying these, these three are cousins. They hang out one together. And in this example, he says that the hope of God spills into or develops into joy and peace. 
I don't think he's trying to do, you know, which came first, you know, the chicken or the egg thing here. What he's primarily trying to show us is not the order of these things, but the source of these things. Look at the verse again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may be abound in hope. Does that make sense? Do you see that he's trying to order hope? I mean, that's the first one. Then joy and peace. He says it in this order, but what is his emphasis? What is his point? To show us the source. Why? So that we might abound, uh, abound in hope. Is that your desire today? To be filled with all joy and peace in believing and abounding in hope. Wouldn't that be a cool Christmas? It's not found in a principle. I love principles. It's found in a person, guys. So all those that are kind of the theology-sided people, hang on to your principles, enjoy them, you know, but understand that the foundation of those principles is a person. For all those people that maybe, you know, lean over here to the emotional side, and that's kind of more of your first gear. It's not that you don't have a second or third gear, but that's kind of your first gear. Know that you're going to be grounded in these passions and these emotions by a person and not just somebody quoting to you principles. Because I know for all the emotionally sided people, they just keep on coming back with this this rule and this rule and this verse and this verse. Have you ever had somebody verse you to death? Yeah. And we're good at it. And if my little Bible doesn't get it, I'll get the bigger Bible out. I know how to verse somebody. We're not making fun, making light of the verse. They help correct and direct us. But we're saying that's not the end all, guys. Don't let that be the end all in your life this Christmas. You want joy, unspeakable joy? You want a peace that surpasses understanding? You want to abound in hope? It's not in principles. It's in a person. And this God loved you so much that he clothed himself in flesh. And he dwelt among us and he gave his life sacrificially so that all of our sins could be cast upon him and all his righteousness imputed to us. And then when he ascended, that person, he said, I leave with you my spirit. So now I don't just dwell among you, I dwell in you. This is the most profound thing. This is the greatest news that you and I could ever have. If we truly do, want to have joy, unspeakable joy, peace that surpasses understanding, and to abound in this biblical hope. It's a person. His name is Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you. Father, will you overwhelm us this morning? 
for all of us, Father, that really like good theology, where we're, we're kind of the principle, the, the, the mathematician kind of minds, Father, where you overwhelm us, not with just the fact, but, Father, the person of Jesus Christ. Father, for those that lean toward the emotion and the passion and, and, and Father, this is just their first year, Father, will you ground them in the person of Jesus Christ? Will you amaze us this morning that even though we may have known these facts and can quote verses this morning, that you, holy God, you King of all kings, would leave the glory of heaven and you dwell among us and then you would equip us with your very spirit. Will you, Father, overwhelm us with that this morning? For this is where joy and peace and hope come from. And so, Father, we look to you. We look to a person. We look to you, God, for our fullness in these things. Correct us, direct us, even these days, Father. Even before we get together with uh, extended family, correct and direct some of our thoughts. Maybe we're holding a real burden against somebody. They just haven't been carrying their share. They haven't been doing this. They said something hateful at Thanksgiving. Correct us, direct us, so that we can have joy, unspeakable joy, peace that surpasses understanding, that we can be abounding in hope. Not because all of a sudden Aunt Susie said the right thing, but because you, holy God, loved us so much that you were willing to save us, redeem us, rescue us from our sin. We put all of our trust, all of our thought, Father, in you. Thank you for removing the heaviness of having to always rejoice just in our own abilities, but to rejoice in what Christ has done for us as we pray this in the beauty of his name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook. Facebook.